Good evening. Uh, let's pray. God, we give you thanks again for this evening. And as we uh, sit and listen a little bit more intently to the scriptures, we pray that you, we would receive your word this evening. More than anything else, we want to receive your word. So may our hearts be open and may our minds and uh, everything just be ready and prepared uh, to listen for you and to receive your spirit and your word again this evening. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. From our, our scriptures this evening, we look at this particular passage from Jeremiah, which, uh, if you are able to take it in, is a, a very peculiar passage in Jeremiah. It's within the context of, it's chapter 32 that we looked at, uh, the beginning part of it, and it sits within uh, the broader context of chapter 30 to 33, chapter 30 to 33. These particular chapters, four of them in the book of Jeremiah, are very different in flavour and character to the rest of Jeremiah, which is very concerned with the subject, the topic of judgment. Um, The fact that Judah, the nation of Judah, the people of Judah, have gone astray. They have uh, neglected God. They've neglected their relationship with God. They've taken God for granted. They've assumed that other powers in the world, other influences are the better way to go in terms of seeking wisdom and counsel. Rather than seeking after God, they've sought after other political powers, namely Egypt, to help them in their fight, their struggle against this new power rising in the east, modern-day Iraq, uh, Babylon, in their, Babylon in that time, uh, through King Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and in the midst of this message of repentance, this message of uh, judgment that is coming, Uh, Jeremiah's analysis of the situation uh, is that this problem that we're facing as a nation is not political. It's not political, it's not economic, uh, it's not social, it's theological. It's theological. It has to do with God. It has to do with God. And so Jeremiah has this very unpopular message to tell. You've turned from God's ways, he says. You've turned from God's ways, and as a result, as a consequence of your behaviour, as a consequence of the things that you've done and the choices that you've made, through your kings and through your leaders as well as you as a people, this is what's happening to you. And God is behind this. God is behind this event. This was the most scandalous thing that Jeremiah said. And and a lot of the other prophets. God is behind this threat that's coming here. Uh, God is using Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, these uh, these people who who have no idea about the God of Israel, but the God of Israel is using them in order to get your attention. Pretty drastic measures, you might say, in order to get a people's attention. But, but for Judah, it had come to that. Uh, no, no amount of reminding or calling them to repentance or to try to get them to change their ways through verbal means or through um, any kind of other acts was getting their attention. The message wasn't getting through, and they were continuing on this path to destruction, their own destruction. And so God is seeking to really get their attention um, by... Uh, and, and helping them to come back to himself. In the midst of this is this occasion where Jeremiah has a message that comes to him from his cousin. And uh, it happened that in times, in, in certain times, uh, people, people were allotted land um, and it was sort of handed down through families and through inheritance. But if it came to a time when the family was in particular financial trouble. They might sell some land to another family and there would be an opportunity for another member within the family 
to buy this particular property back. So it would be like a three-way exchange type thing, or two or two-way exchange, I suppose. Three-way, um, and uh, yeah, three-way, three, three three parties. So in other words, another family member would come to the aid of the one who's in financial trouble by by buying back the property uh, that was um, that it was sold to. Anyway, you, if I had a, if I had a whiteboard, I'd, I'd draw it, but that, it'll have to suffice. Uh, read about it in Leviticus 25. Uh, Leviticus 25, 25 to 28 is where you'll find the reference there to, to what I'm talking about. So in that context, this cousin comes to Jeremiah and says, hey, this situation's happened, we've run into financial trouble. You've got the opportunity to buy the land back, to keep the land within the family and in the family inheritance. Okay, all right. So, so in that kind of situation, if Jeremiah's got the means, the money to, to pay for it, um, then it's probably a good thing to do because keeps the land within the family and it, and it provides some security and inheritance for future generations, right? Yeah. The catch is, is that the city is currently surrounded by the enemy and, uh, and there, are, there are catapults flying and arrows flying and, and the, the city is in lockdown because the enemy is just, just camped beyond the walls. And so in that context, in the context of war, and in the context that people are starving on the inside of those city walls uh, and that the battle will soon be over because the king has got no choice but to surrender at some stage unless a miracle happens and somehow they get out. But you know, at the moment they're looking at it's a choice between life and death. In that context, is the purchase of property maybe a high priority for Jeremiah, or, or would it be for you in that kind of instance? You know, maybe there might be some bigger fish to fry uh, in those circumstances, and you, and Jeremiah could be forgiven for thinking that now is probably not the right time. Got some other things I'm dealing with, let alone the fact that I'm actually uh, the the king Zedekiah is really ticked off with me again because I've got this really unpopular message that I keep on telling him over and over and over, no matter how many times I tell him, I keep on getting a message from God that I need to keep going back to tell him. So I keep on fronting up, telling Zedekiah the, the same thing. And so now I'm in the real bad books of Zedekiah, and he's got me in detention. I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm basically locked up in the court itself. Uh, I can't get out. I can't roam around the city freely. I'm in the bad books, real bad books. Uh, and uh, But... And here my cousin is, coming to me and uh, with this opportunity to buy some land and keep it within the family for future, future generations. When it looks like, what does our future look like at the moment? Looks pretty bad. Looks pretty bad. Is this a good investment? Is this, is this a good property investment? Jeremiah could have very easily just turned that, turned that away. Turned that whole situation. Look. Not, not right now. Things are, things are not real good for me right now. This is just going to have to go on. But at the beginning of that passage, in verse 6 of chapter 32, before the cousin comes to Jeremiah, God speaks to Jeremiah. God speaks to him. He says, your cousin's going to come to see you. And he's going to talk about this particular plot of land that he's going to want you to buy to stay within the family. Lo and behold, in walks his cousin. With basically word for word, I'm here to you know, 
see about this land to keep it in with the family, etc., etc. And so Jeremiah, in this, and so Jeremiah in this context, doesn't see something that's, you know, weird or or irregular or anything like that. He sees this as a God thing. And so, even though it makes no sense at all, he gives over the money. And if you read it, go through very, very carefully in chapter 32, 6 to, 6 to 15. It's really detailed. Really, really detailed. He measures the, gets the weights out. He measures the silver. He gets people there to witness the, the occasion. It's very, very intentional and deliberate. And it really is making the point that this is legal. This is binding. This deed, this contract, the way it's described, this is for real. This is not a hoax or this is not a fake or this is not just a, some casual thing. This is for real. This is serious business. And then the pinch comes at the end, verse 15, where Jeremiah has been saying to, and he, he, gets, he passes on the contract to his servant Baruch, who, who comes in a little bit later through, through the end of Jeremiah and has a bit more of a prominent role. And he passes it, and, he, and Jeremiah says this, you know, the Lord says this, the Lord says that. Give the, you know, give the contract, put it here, da, 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 make it so it stays in good condition, etc., etc., because this is what God says. Houses, vineyards, and fields will be bought and sold again. Houses, vineyards, and fields will be bought and sold again. What's he saying? What's he saying? That though it looks like there is no future, there is no viable future for us, God says that there is a future. And Jeremiah, who for the mo- for there's 52 chapters in Jeremiah, and probably 48 or 49 of them are bad news except for these middle four, 30 to 33. That in the midst of this message of judgment, this doom that's coming amongst the people, there is hope. There is hope. There is a future beyond Babylon. And Jeremiah doesn't just say this in a sort of a, a nice, lovey-dovey, sentimental, warm, fuzzy-feeling way. He does it by actually spending his own money with real money, real people. <laughs> I was flashback to, to Judge Judy then. Um, uh, real money, real people. This is a real situation. This is a real transaction. This is a real purchase. You know, there's nothing symbolic about this, but but something very highly symbolic, powerful, is in this mundane, regular act. And it is a message, a symbolic message for all of Judah that there is hope. There is hope beyond these days. There is a future in the mind of God. Maybe not for you, but for your children and for your children's children. Houses, Vineyards and fields will be bought and sold again. 
We are a church, and God calls the church to give hope to the world. But not just some kind of sentimental hope, a real grounded hope, because it's hope that we don't just sort of come up with and pass on. It's hope that we ourselves have received. We've received hope. We've received it in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there's life. In Jesus, there's hope for future. Beyond darkness, beyond death itself, this is what the death and resurrection of Jesus is. It is a message of hope. And it's this message, this light, that we're called again and again and again, implored, encouraged, coaxed to give and to shine. Not just into the darkness trying, you know, in order to reveal evil as such, but to give hope. To give hope. It's like being in a really dark, a really, really dark place, pitch black, so dark you can't even see the hand in front of you, in front of your face. And no matter how long you try to stare in the darkness, you just, you can't, your eyes can't adjust. It's that dark. And yet the feeling, the feeling you might feel when you see a light, just a small one. What does it do? It helps to give you direction. It helps to, to, to give you some guidance, a place to head towards, because when you're pitch black, fumbling around, who knows what you're going to bump into? Who knows how you're going to hurt yourself? But a little light, a little light, just shining in the darkness, lifts the spirits. And all of a sudden, people don't notice the darkness as much because I'm so focused on that light. We've got light. It doesn't matter how big or small you might think it is. We've got light. It's inside us. And we ought not to take that for granted. We ought not to, to diminish that or to say, well, that light's not that effective or it's not that big or it's not that powerful. The light of Christ is in you and is amongst us. And I see that light shining. I see it shining when we get involved with um, ministries, particularly at Mount Gravatt State School, uh, through the homework club and the reading group that's going to start, or the breakfast club, through things that happen through the week here on a Wednesday club or a day guild. I see it happening in services of worship. I see it happening on occasions like our garage sale and our our carols nights. It's the light of Christ just shining, even in a small way, but that has such a large effect for people who are stumbling in darkness. I promised that we'd finish off the story of the Lorax. And we're going to do that tonight. I, I don't have the DVD with me, but maybe we can watch that on another night. I'm just going to read you the end of the story. So we pick up the story with the onceler and, uh, and all his business has, has been wiped out because the trees have all fallen and there's no more th- needs to be made. All his family have left him and now it's just him 
and the Lorax looking at each other. The Lorax said nothing, just gave me a glance, just gave me a very sad, sad backward glance as he lifted himself by the seat of his pants. And I'll never forget the grim look on his face when he heisted himself and took leave of this place through a hole in the smog without leaving a trace. And all that the Lorax left here in this mess was a small pile of rocks with the one word, unless. Whatever that meant, well, I just couldn't guess. That was long, long ago. But each day since that day, I've sat here and worried and worried away. Through the years, while my buildings have fallen apart, I've worried about it with all of my heart. But now, says the Wansler, now that you're here, this little boy whom he's telling this story to, now that you're here, the word of the Lorax seems perfectly clear. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. So, catch, calls the Wansler. He lets something fall. It's a truffle of seed. It's the last one of all. You're in charge of the last of the truffle of seeds. And truffle of trees are what everyone needs. Plant a new truffle. Treat it with care. Give it clean water and feed it fresh air. Grow a forest. Protect it from axes that hack. Then the Lorax and all of his friends may come back. A seed is a very small thing. But when planted, given care, fed, nurtured, can grow into a forest to give hope to people. A small act, maybe something as mundane and and completely regular as this particular act that Jeremiah was faced with, this purchase of property. Maybe something like that is what God is saying to us to do. And in that, we'll give hope to other people. It doesn't have to be purchasing property. But maybe it's making a meal for someone when they're sick, or they've just had a child, or they're going through a rough patch. Maybe it's giving a financial gift to someone who is struggling to make ends meet or perhaps is in desperate need of some glasses to wear or a go-card to get around like the people whom we're going to gift money to through the Refugee Claimant Support Service. Or maybe it's filling a shoebox for a child Uh, in an impoverished country who never receives a present. Or maybe it's inviting someone out for a cup of coffee or giving them a gift voucher. Say, hey, go have the night off. Go do something for yourself. 
doing something just small, just to give a little bit of hope, a little bit of light into their life, into their day, into their week, so that the darkness doesn't seem to be so overwhelming, so dark anymore, because now there's just a little bit of light shining through. We're called to give light. As a congregation, we're called to give light. So let's let that light shine. It's not ours. It's Jesus. It's Christ's light. Let's shine that light. And let's not be afraid of people's reactions or how they receive that light. Let's just let it shine because there will be people for whom it gives hope and life to. Let's be like Jesus. Let's be like Jeremiah. And let's give hope. Amen.